Save the animals. Kill the humans. Have you heard something like that? Well, that slogan captures a mindset of a subculture of rage against the human. Why? Why this rage against the human? Now, I know there are varying degrees of people's commitment and and level of uh, purpose in these things. Some just jump on the bandwagon for anything that's provocative or anything that is shocking. But I also know that driven by guilt and blame over perceived unfairness from self-centered dissatisfaction and disaffection with life, this self-loathing is turned outward against what is the inescapable reminder of God consciousness. And what is that? Humans are the image bearers of God the Creator. That is recorded for us over and over throughout Scripture, not just in the opening pages of Genesis. So as the Bible reveals, the heart of the issue is hatred and rebellion against God, attacking every normal order of God-created categories connecting and witnessing to original creation and thus to God as creator. Now remember, the torture and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the God-man, is a graphic depiction of what sinful, God-hating humans would do if they could get their hands on God. However, this is an obvious hypocrisy in that those who claim the slogan and go around prancing about holding their signs, save the animals, kill the humans... What needs to be added is, kill the humans except me. If they really had their convictions, they would follow out their supposed shocking belief. Now, the biblical doctrine of salvation neither applies to spirit beings, angels, and demons, nor to animals. That's an important, important doctrine that we need to understand. The biblical doctrine of salvation does not apply to angels, and to the fallen angels, demons. And it does not apply to animals uh, uh, as well. Wild animals were subject to human dominion. Again, this is something celebrated throughout the Bible. Uh, and even as we heard in uh, the psalm that we confessed this morning, originally to Adam, and then after the fall and after the flood, to humans. It's reiterated what we sometimes refer to as the dominion mandate. We have many examples given to us in Scripture. I was thinking of a few. One is David as a shepherd boy. Remember how he protected the flock against the the wild and and, uh, vicious and ferocious animals, the lion and the bear? And then there is a passing comment. I've mentioned it to you when we started the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1 that when Jesus had went on his assault mission against the devil in the wilderness and when the temptation was over, Jesus remained in the wilderness and we're told he was among the wild animals. And and the idea there is he was in the midst of, of the wild animals. And this was not some kind of Disney presentation where the wild animals came up to him and, and uh, the mountain lions were like little kitties and the snakes were like uh, little buddies that just uh, twirled around his neck. That's not what is intended there because we're told that the angels ministered to him and protected him in his condition, being exhausted physically, uh, uh, hum- in his humanity. We're even told that he hungered and he thirsted. Well, in that condition, the angels protected him, his being out in the midst of the wild animals. So some important things for thought there. Uh, By the way, do you know what the most deadly and lethal animal is historically? We think of ferocious lions or we think of of bears. Because I enjoy the outdoors, I read a lot of stories about Uh, people out in the wilderness in various uh, encounters with wild animals. But do you know what is the most lethal animal to date? The mosquito. 
the mosquito, more people have died from the diseases that come through the mosquito than from lions or bears or snakes. What is your most terrifying? Uh, spiders? What's the most terrifying creature to you? And we don't really think so much about the delicate little mosquito as the most lethal. Anyway, uh, also in Old Testament case law, do you know that domestic animals were held accountable for their behavior at the liability, the expense, and the prosecution of their owners? Some very interesting studies and and applications of law in the Old Testament case laws. Uh, What about angels? What about the holy angels, the elect angels, and then the fallen angels, the demons? All of the angels were originally created. The word angelos, angel, that word we use, means messenger. But there's an identified category for us of spirit beings in Scripture. And this is what the larger catechism gives us instruction about. How did God create the angels or the spirit beings? God created all the angels, spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power to execute his commandments and to praise his name, yet subject to change. Boy, that's an important point there because we know that God did not create evil and God did not create the fallen angels. uh, He created them as as, um, spirit beings, uh, the devil included. But in the rebellion against God, these spirit beings uh, turned and God judged them. What is God's providence toward the angels? Question 19 of the larger catechism. God by his providence permitted some of the angels willfully and irrecoverably to fall into sin and damnation, limiting and ordering that and all their sins to his own glory and establish the rest in holiness and happiness, employing them all at his pleasure in the administrations of his power, mercy, and justice. So we know the scriptures tell us that the holy and elect angels that remain are God's ministers. They serve him. They're his servants. And we have a few glimpses in scripture about the holy elect angels. But those angels that fell are under God's judgment. The devil and his uh, cohorts, the, the fallen uh, angels, the fallen demons, or the demons now that are fallen. I think there is a, a very useful comparison here too in reference to the doctrine of salvation. The fact that we said that neither spirit beings nor animals are included in God's salvation. They are included in God's judgment and God's restoration. But we have application here to help us understand something more about redemption and atonement. That it is specifically directed to God recovering his image bearers, humans. And Jesus did not come as an angel. Jesus did not come as an animal. Jesus came as a human. Now, chapter 5 of Mark symbolizes and reveals Jesus' authority and power between the natural world and the supernatural world. As we've been looking, we see chapter 5, the gospel source being uniquely Jesus, the Son of God. So Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead, even between this world and the other world. And that's what meets us so powerfully here in chapter 5. We've had other glimpses of it. But there is just a a greater detail that it goes into here in chapter 5 of Mark. We have seen that the first story, verses 1 through 20, is the gathering man possessed with a legion of demons. And as Jesus passes over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern shore, so he divinely transcends the natural world and the supernatural world with his presence and power over the living and the dead. So when Jesus arrives on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the natural world, the first thing he encounters is the evil presence of a legion of demons from the supernatural world. And then Jesus 
by his divinely transcendent power. This is indicated to us by his compelling subjugation. From a distance, we're told. I don't want you to lose that point, that observation. That from a distance, when Jesus lands on the shore with the disciples, at a distance, this man who was demon-possessed, living among the decaying uh, and uh, remaining bones in the tombs, they are driven by the demons to be among the dead. I told you, I don't know how gruesome and grueling that is. It may have been his last connection to humanity. I don't really know. But what we find out is that he is compelled and subjugated, even from a distance, the man and the demons, by Jesus' transcending power. And so, although the human and the demonic are tangled up in this man, Jesus is able and intent on saving the man and destroying the demons, which, again, I want us to keep focused before us in this story. That brings us then to the the last part of this first story in verses 12 through 20. Jesus delivering and saving this man, body, soul, and spirit, reveals his saving power transcending the natural world of creation, including humans and animals, as well as the supernatural world of spirit beings. They're all here, aren't they? We have Jesus saving this man, but in saving this man, he deals with the supernatural world in the presence of the demons and his power over them, and that affects even a herd of pigs that are off on the side of the mountain. And so all of this is brought together for us in this story with important lessons for us to, to, uh, to see. I want you to understand that Jesus did not parole or release the demons to their own recognizance. When In verse 13, they're begging him. When they're saying, uh, don't send us away uh, in compa- uh, companion uh, passages in Matthew and Luke, they say, don't send us into the abyss or don't judge us before our time. So the demons are aware and have confessed who Jesus is and of his power over them. And they're begging him in a, in a crazed huff. They're saying, don't send us into the abyss. Don't judge us before the end of the world, before the great judgment. All these things they're saying they know about. So Jesus did not parole or release the demons to their own recognizance. So what happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? I can't say for certain. I'm going to suggest to you that exactly what they feared. They were not left just to roam around and figure out what they were going to do next to cause trouble. I believe that they were assigned to the spiritual dungeon that they feared. Uh, the very thing that they were saying they didn't want Jesus to do. And, and Jesus, again, I think it's a, a masterful touch in terms of his power and his presence and his transcendence. When they beg to go into the pigs, Jesus gives them leave. Okay, go, get, go to the pigs. I think there was something symbolic about that too as unclean animals under the old covenant. But, you know, go to the pigs. And what happens? The pigs run down the mountain and drown in the sea. So what happens to the demons? I think they go to the abyss. They're not left to their own recognizance. They're not paroled by Jesus. Now there's a lot of speculation about the morality of the destruction of the pigs. That's kind of why I started out with our uh, shocking slogan, you know, save the animals, kill the humans. Where does that kind of mindset, where does that kind of mentality come from? So there's a lot of people who are more upset about the destruction of the pigs than recognizing the saving of this man. What about the morality of the destruction of these pigs, which Jesus allowed as these demons were crazed in their huffing? Don't send us, don't send us in the abyss. Don't send us away. Don't judge us now. Let us go into the pigs. And Jesus allowed it. Um, 
Assumption should not be made that the owners or the herders of these pigs were Jews in violation of Old Testament laws. Some have tried to satisfy the moral dilemma here that, well, these were in violation of God's Old Testament laws by having these pigs, and so uh, this was a judgment that Jesus rendered against them. We're not told that in Scripture. You know, you may speculate about that, but that's not what we're told in Scripture. We're told that Jesus, of his own purpose, allowed the demons to go into the pigs, I believe, knowing that they would self-destruct. And so that simply doesn't answer our question. Um, the word animal, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, animos, comes from Greek uh, meaning wind or spirit, so that animals have a life spirit but do not have a rational soul. Yeah, there, there are animals, the pigs before they ran off the mountain and the pigs after they ran off the mountain. Before the, they ran off the mountain, they were alive. They were living creatures. When they ran off the mountain and into the sea, they drowned and they were dead creatures. I used to use this example with my students in ethics class about the fact that, that animals, though created by God and have a life spirit that God controls and is from God, They do not have a rational soul, and they are not a part of God's salvation. They do not receive the salvation that humans receive through faith and repentance. And I I know that that sometimes troubles us emotionally because we're attached to our pets. There was a time when animals were seen as more a, a, a use to humans than just to pets. And there is something strange and unnatural in that people show more affection and doting on animals than they do humans. That's wrong. I'm just going to tell you, it's wrong. And that doesn't mean that we're cruel to animals. Uh, I I believe that it's a responsibility. Uh, Proverbs reflects upon a man of God doesn't even want cruelty to happen to animals. doesn't mean they're not used and harvested. But still, we don't want to just intentionally treat animals in a cruel way. But what are we to do with this? What are we to understand in terms of uh, animals that have a, a, a living spirit but do not have a soul? Uh, I want you to notice the incompatibility between the human who was the host, and so he was not driven to, human, to, to self-destruction. Did you note that? Here this man was possessed with a legion of demons. He cut himself. He screamed. He went into fits. He lived uh, among the nasty, decaying, dead remains of humans and yet he wasn't infected with disease he didn't go off and kill himself here was a human possessed of demons but not self-destructive he did not kill himself because he was the host of the demons and then when the demons go into the pigs what immediately happens the pigs run off the cliff and drown they can't maintain or or continue in that state with the the demons. I think there are some valuable considerations here. One is that there is no biblical grounds for the superstition about uh, demons using animals to attack or to harm humans. That's a human invention. It may be a mainstay of horror movies. The demons enter whatever particular animal it is. You know, your house cat turns it demonic. Well, some people, like my wife, think all house cats are demonic, but I can assure you they're not. There is no biblical account, there's no biblical warrant for saying that that demons have power over animals and can uh, possess or enter animals or can transmute themselves into animals or whatever and harm humans. There is no biblical account for that. You need to do away with that superstition. Okay, 
There are wild animals. There are diseased animals. You get bit by a rabid fox, you better go get medical treatment. But it's not because the fox has a demon, it's because the fox has a disease. There is a difference. And we need to pay attention and be careful about that because there's such a growing superstition of what uh, Van Til used to refer, refer to as chaos and old night, the return of paganism and pagan superstitions. Animals are not controlled by demons to harm or to attack humans. Also, listen carefully to this. There are no biblical accounts of demon possession responsible for murder or mass murder. These seem to be separate moral categories of evil. What did these demons do? They possessed this man. We're told there was a legion. There were many. There were at least 2,000. They entered the pigs. We said we don't have to literally refer to there being exactly 6,000. There was just a bunch. There were a lot of these demons in this man. That raises a lot of questions on its own that we don't have answers for. But here's the point. This man lived out in the tombs. Shackles and chains would not hold him. People feared to go that way. At night, oftentimes, he would go into screaming fits and rages. But no one, we're told, was murdered by him. Just the opposite of what we would think. I already mentioned to you, I think the disciples weren't so sure when he came charging down the mountain at them. Are we going to hang around here and see if this theory is true? That demons, you know, are not responsible for murder? They didn't know he was demon-possessed at the time. But we let our imaginations run away with us too. Or somehow we just can't come to grips with the depths of sin. So when there is a murder, a gruesome murder, when there is a mass murder, it happens. And we immediately begin to ask questions about, oh, this had to be demonic. No, it didn't. It had to be sin. We need to get straight on this. I believe there is demonic influence. I believe demons are real. But I believe Jesus and the Holy Spirit are greater than the devil and the demons. And Scripture is indicating things to us here. And this man who was demon-possessed was not charged with murder. There was no mass murder in the area. The host of the demons kept him alive, tormented as he was, and fearful as the people were to be around him. But no case of murder or mass murder. So let's don't try to give the devil more credit than he's due, and let's do not underestimate the effects and the depths of sin and depravity. Now, Jesus unequivocally states that humans are of more value than animals in his teaching, particularly the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us that humans are of more value than animals. It doesn't mean that animals aren't valued. It doesn't mean that we should treat animals cruel, cruelly. But that Jesus says humans are of more value than a different class as God's image bearers. Jesus followed the Old Testament food laws, including the eating of animals. Jesus ate lamb in the Passover. Jesus ate fish, we're told, on occasion. So Jesus was not a vegetarian. And I say that because, just to give you perspective on this, I know we hear so much now about vegetarian and vegan, and, and somehow you're closer to God, and this can keep us pure. You, you have an argument with Jesus if you believe that, because Jesus was not a vegetarian. By Old Testament law, he couldn't be. He had to partake of the Passover. But he did it willingly. I think he enjoyed it. He went to the wedding feast. Uh, several times we're told he ate fish. He ate fish and honey, honeycomb and uh, you know bread and, and things of that nature that were part of those meals, the festive meals, but probably also of, of the common life. 
because Jesus was a real human. I remember, I got to thinking about this. I, I don't know why this stuck with me, but it was back when I just finished university in my ministerial training. I was in the car and I was listening to a program on the radio and there was an interview with a fellow on the radio that said, Jesus was a vegetarian. That was 40 years ago. <laughs> I, yeah, I know, I don't believe it either. Yeah, 40 years ago I heard that radio stuff and I was like, what? People can say the most outlandish things and people will believe it without testing it with Scripture. But I want to tell you today, it was true 40 years ago when I heard it. It's true today. It was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus lived. Jesus was not a vegetarian. Now, if you want to be a vegetarian because it's a health matter, maybe you're uh, lacking enzymes to process certain kinds of foods or whatever, then I say good for you. It's good to have a healthy life, isn't it? You know? Um, oatmeal is good for you. And I say that to myself every time I'm eating bacon in the morning. Oatmeal is good for me. Oatmeal is good for me. But bacon tastes so much better. But we still are, are wise and careful even in the foods that we eat. But it doesn't make us more holy. Okay? It may make you feel better. That's a good thing to feel better. But it doesn't make you more holy. That's the problem that I have with it. The paganism and the false teaching that we don't use animals or animal byproducts because animals are better than humans. You see, animals are better than humans because they're dependent upon us and they're more innocent. Uh, humans are really evil. Humans are really the scourge. Save the animals, kill the humans! I hope that unsettles you because that is not the Word of God. And Jesus dealing here with these uh, demons, with this demon-possessed man, and with these pigs shows us something very, very important. Jesus is intent on saving the man, destroying the demons. And what happened to the pigs? I'm not going to question God about that. Now, Jesus' humanity ultimately reveals by the incarnation the redemption and restoration of humans as God's image bearers, in that Jesus did not come as an angel or an animal. That's an important teaching in Scripture. There are a number of references to that. You know, we have the Old Testament referring to the angel of the Lord. I believe that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or the Christophany, but the word angel, as it often translated, is the word messenger. And so sometimes it's referred to as the messenger of the covenant. Who is the mediator? Who is the messenger of the covenant? But the second person of the Holy Trinity who came like us and yet unlike us in the incarnation. He did not come as a spirit being. Hebrews writes in, in the first uh, two chapters of the book of Hebrews, writes intently about that, quoting even scriptures that we use this morning in Psalm 8 and elsewhere, that throughout scripture it's taught to us. That the second person of the Holy Trinity, the messenger of the covenant, the messenger of the Lord, the Lord, Jesus himself identifies himself here as the one who saved this man, who had power over the demons, and says, go and tell people what the Lord has done for you, what compassion he's had upon you. Jesus identifies himself as the Lord, not a created spirit being. He's not an angel. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity, God himself, who came in the wonder and mystery and miracle of the incarnation in connection with the human nature, the man Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And this is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's not an animal. He's referred to as the Lamb of God. When Jesus is called the Lamb of God, do you think he's really a sheep? 
When Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, do you think that's really corporally turning into the flesh and the blood of Jesus? We would be foolish to think that. That's not how Scripture and language is used. When Jesus is called the Lamb of God by John the Baptist, you know what that means. You know He's fulfilling the type of the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. Jesus was not a real sheep. Jesus was a real man. So I I know we don't get confused. Why do we let these things get tangled up in us? Uh, Paul writes and says, Jesus, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. You know what that means. You know how Jesus fulfilled the imagery and the symbolism and the promises of the Old Covenant in the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb. You know that that means Jesus didn't turn into a sheep. You know that Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood, doesn't mean that it turns into the physical body and blood of Jesus. You know Scripture is using symbolism there to tell us of a greater reality. Things that God reveals to us, we refer to them as the mysteries of God. That's where the word sacrament comes from in Latin. The mysteries of God. Things that God reveals to us that we couldn't otherwise know. I like to refer to them as God's holy secrets. The family secrets that God is revealing to us. Aren't they wonderful? When he says, look, take water. We're going to be done with blood and blood sacrifice and blood rites. In the place of circumcision, now we have water baptism. I'm going to tell you what it means in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Representing the power of the Holy Spirit to work inwardly, to manifest outwardly the tremendous, supernatural, wonderful, transforming change that God brings to us in body, soul, and spirit. That's what baptism is about. Being livingly united to Jesus Christ by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and by the washing away of sin's guilt. Only Jesus can do that as commissioned by the Father because He is the messenger of the covenant. He is the mediator. He is the Savior. We come to the Lord's Supper and Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. He's saying, I am more real to you by faith than these elements are to your physical senses. You can eat this bread and you can drink this cup till you die. And if you do it without faith, you'll die outside of Christ. I don't care how many times you eat the bread and how many times you take the cup. It must be by faith that you take the cup and you take the bread with the words of institution, believing that Jesus is more real to me. He is my life. He is the bread of life. I live by Him, by faith in Him. This body's going to die. That bread and that cup are going to pass away. But we, beloved, who believe and have been transformed and renewed and saved and regenerated and made new and added to Christ in the wonderful union of His body, we go on forever in heaven with the Lord. That's what the Lord's Supper is telling us. And so you see, Jesus didn't come as an angel. Jesus didn't come as an animal. He came as a unique and wonderful human, the one and only God-man. The pig herders were astounded and they were witnesses to this confounding episode that we've read about. They also needed witnesses for not being to blame for what happened to the pigs. So when when this happens, they go into the city and they go into the country and they start telling everybody what happened over here. Well, you're not going to believe this. Yeah, sadly, they didn't believe it as we subsequently find out. But they go telling everyone They're not just telling everyone because they're astounded. They also have to cover for themselves. We didn't do this. It's not our fault. And so the folks from the city and the folks from the countryside, I I expect that also means the leaders. Those who had authority and power within the city, those who perhaps owned the land and were uh, concerned about their property and the pigs. Anyway, they all come out to this same location where this 
event took place. And so there is a secondary evidence for us here, like a third-party witness that we need to recognize because this happens often in Scripture. Those who had no particular vested interest because they say they don't believe in Jesus, they ask Him to leave, they also bear witness to the, to the truth of these things. They say, this is what happened. And we're not to blame. And so the strange response of the local people to Jesus' special presence is most evident by the restored man and the destruction of the herd of pigs. I want you to also notice that linguistically it's associated with the request from the demons, from the local people, and from this saved man. But they all have a different relationship to Jesus that's expressed. Now, I'm not going to go into a great bit of detail with this. I put it in your notes for you this morning. But if you'll look at verse 12, verse 17, and verse 18. Let's just look at that. Look at verse 12. So all the demons begged him. All right, you see the word begged there in my translation. Uh, If you go down to verse 17, and they began to plead, beg, plead with him to depart from their region. The demons begged him that he wouldn't send them into the abyss or judge them before their time and that he would let them go into the pigs. The local people came out when all of this was uh, presented to them. They begged Jesus that he would leave their region. Please go away, leave us. And then if you'll look at verse 18, uh, and when Jesus got into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him, pleaded in devout desire, let me go with you, let me stay with you. So what I want you to see here is that grammatically, uh, these three references have the same root word, but linguistically it's in a different form. So the language of the text is telling and disturbing in this. The text says that the local people came to Jesus where this event took place, and all the pieces of the story uh, were put together along with the evidence before them. And what happened to them? They were afraid. They were afraid of what they witnessed and what had been told to them. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jesus and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I think that's sad, almost moves me to tears. Because their fear was not purified by faith and repentance. You see, the difference between the demons crazed huffing, oh, oh, send us into the pigs, don't send us into judgment, don't send us into the abyss, and the people's terrified pleading, oh, please, please go away from us, go out of here, don't stay here. And then the redeemed saved man in his devout begging, please let me go with you. Please, let me get in the boat. I'll go with you. I'll follow you. I'll be with you. The difference in those responses is the difference of saving faith. Demons don't have saving faith. The local people didn't have saving faith. The man who was saved had saving faith. You know what James tells us? You believe there's one God? You do well. That's good theology. The devils believe it, and they tremble. I'll tell you here, the devils were trembling. They went into the pigs, and they were banished. The people believed in one God, 
as much as we know. I don't, maybe there were Greeks among them or Romans or, or Gentiles, but they had witnessed a power that was beyond human. But they were afraid. It was a fear, not of reverence and awe and falling at Jesus' feet. It was a fear that wasn't purified by faith. It was not saving faith. They believed the power of God was demonstrated, and all the evidence didn't change their heart. Don't lose that point. All the evidence of the man sitting in his right mind at Jesus' feet, the one they knew had been terrorizing them. The report was clear. Nobody denied that. Now there was a great change, and and those who had witnessed told them what had happened. This is something beyond human ability. But what did they do? All of that evidence externally could not change their heart. But in fear, afraid of who this is and what could happen, they asked Jesus to leave. There's a powerful lesson in that for us. Sorry about that. Elliot unlocks the door and I'm supposed to be reminded to turn my phone off. (laughs) What a mess. What a a mess we are without good helpers and servants of the Lord. (laughs) Anyway, the point being that you can believe there's one God. The devils believe it and they tremble. And what will change your abject fear of who this God is? is only saving faith. Saving faith that has you sitting at Jesus' feet and begging to go with Him. I'll go where you go, Lord. I trust where you go. Think about this. The man was begging to go with Jesus. The disciples and apostles were going to be going with Jesus, and you know where that led, don't you? This man was just begging and pleading, please let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, no. You go back to your family and you go back to your friends. And you tell them what great things the Lord has done you, what compassion the Lord has had on you. Who's the Lord? Jesus is the Lord. Who saved this man? Jesus is the Savior of this man. And what did Jesus commission him to do? To go and bear witness to his friends, to his family, to the people all around that region. Because Jesus was leaving, but Jesus was not leaving them without a witness to the power of the gospel. I'm going to tell you, I don't think that man's commission was in vain. I don't know if there's any record of people believing in that region, but why should we doubt that there wouldn't be? When Jesus commissioned him to go and witness of Jesus' saving power and of the Lord's compassion, I believe there was going to be response by the power of the Holy Spirit. What all the evidence of of power over the demons and the destruction of the pigs and, and of the outward manifestation of the transformation of this man, what all external things could not do, Jesus commissioned this man to go and do by bearing witness of the gospel to the power of God and the compassion of the Lord that Jesus is the Savior. So you see, that's what we focus on. That's what we continue to do. We continue witnessing that Jesus is the Savior. This new disciple of Jesus by the full orb doctrine of salvation was commissioned by God to witness to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what I want you to take away from this story. That's what Mark is focusing on. How Jesus did what humans cannot do. How Jesus saved this man. How Jesus disentangled the demonic out of this man. How Jesus destroyed the demons. As powerful as that is, that was not what would bring salvation. The people who had witnessed it, the people who had told about it, that didn't change their hearts. They feared God and they asked Him to leave. 
But what changed their hearts was Jesus' power to say to this man, as he says to us, you go and tell others what great compassion the Lord has had on you. What has Jesus done for me? Jesus has forgiven my sins, and Jesus has given me the promise of life, a life beyond this life and a world beyond this world. To conclude with this morning, I came across this quote from Dr. Van Til that I, I think is really applicable and useful. It has to do with the divine revelation of faith. We're, we're accosted with the analogy of reason. And even in a passage like this, we're told it's unreasonable. It doesn't fit human reason that in terms of intellectualism, we can't really believe in the other world or the supernatural world and so forth. On the other hand, we're told that there's the analogy of experience. Even things we can't explain, we still embrace and say, oh, that's real. And we give vent to our, uh, our uh, superstitions about these kinds of things. But what is reliable to us is the analogy of revelation. God tells us what these things mean. That's what I've endeavored to, to show you in the first part of chapter 5 and, and, and all the chapters leading up to it. God tells us what these things mean. That's the revelation of God and the analogy of revelation that we can make application and understand the world in which we live, that we live by faith and we trust God as He directs us like He did this man to continue to bear witness to the compassion of the Lord and His saving power. Here's what Van Til writes. Here we reach the high water mark of present day anti-theistic thought. You believe there's one God? No, we don't believe there's any God at all. Our opponents maintain not only that they do not know anything about the nature of reality, but that nobody else can possibly know anything about it. From the analogy of, of reason, we just don't know. It's beyond us. We can't say anything with certainty. We can't say anything with absoluteness. Except we're going to say we're absolutely able to say those things. The present-day scientist is often not the humble seeker after truth, but the militant preacher of a faith. And the faith that he preaches is the faith of agnosticism. Un everything's unknown. Nothing can be known for sure. Interesting, you may know that the word science and scientist comes from the senses. Things that can be validated by the senses. But that doesn't tell us all, does it? It's only the outward. The face of science and philosophy today is, with rare exceptions, set squarely against Christianity and the theism that serves as its foundation. So that's what I was telling you about, the analogy of reason and the analogy of experience. We don't, as Christians, reject the analogy of reason or the analogy of uh, experience. We just say they're limited and they're insufficient because we don't know it all. But we can know what God reveals to us is true and reliable. And it doesn't change over time. As a matter of fact, you know, this story that we have recorded in Mark happened over 2,000 years ago. Uh, this uh, quote that I have to you from Van Til was from a generation ago. But we're still contending for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. We're still bearing witness to the power of the gospel and to the answers that come through the revelation of Scripture and from Jesus, the God-man. So Van Til goes on to say, what else then can we do but to take the sword, and by that he means the word of God, and the trowel, the word of God, the word of God that is used for defense, the word of God that's used for building up, the sword and the trowel. We are driven to a defense of our faith. That's true in every generation. The full-orbed life, that which the world has sought in vain, then and now, is in our possession. And when I say that, I don't mean then as in the days of 
Dr. Van Til a generation ago. I mean also then back to the days of the man that Jesus saved. No, you don't need to come with me. You stay here. You go to your family and to your friends and you tell them of the great compassion of the Lord and what the Lord has done for you. I, Jesus, am the Lord. So the full orb life, that which the world has sought in vain, is in our possession. We have an absolute God in whose fellowship we have even now the full orbed life. We have an absolute God who alone can give meaning to all our striving for advancement. We have an absolute God who alone can guarantee that that which we have in principle now will be fully realized hereafter. We do. We have an absolute God who gives meaning to our life now. The world strives and strives and uh, the ancient uh, wise men of, of the Bible said it's a striving after wind. It's trying to put wind in a bottle. Trying to put smoke in a bottle. The world striving but never achieving. And you in the world may achieve all manner of material possession. But nothing that can satisfy your soul. That has been played out over and over. From the ancient days of the Bible to the most recent uh, entertainment show. A striving after meaning and purpose and an advancement that goes beyond possession. An advancement that brings one reconciliation with God. That only comes through Jesus Christ. It only comes through the gospel, the good news. That's why it's good news. And that is over and over and over again what we are contending with and yet what we possess and have the blessed witness to. The compassion the Lord has had on us. We have an absolute God because He is absolute and true and that truth is knowable. He alone can guarantee That which we have now in principle. That which we have in down payment. You know who the guarantee and the down payment of God's promises to us is? Scriptures are very clear about this. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. The witness of the Holy Spirit. It is the down payment of that which is yet to come. That we already have now in principle. God has invested life in us. And that invested life will bring the dividend of eternal life. Because of the great compassion the Lord has had on us. So I hope that you will be encouraged and built up and excited from these stories of the Lord Jesus and how they are timeless. I know that when we come against many stories like this in the Bible, we have more questions than we have answers. But let's not dwell on that. Let's let's look upon what we do know and know that what we don't know, God is greater than that. Has that ever settled upon you? It's what Abraham said. I know God will do what's right. You know, people want to bring up the question of the morality of the pigs being destroyed. My answer to that, God will do what's right. But you know what's more important than the pigs being destroyed? Jesus saved a man from demons, from death, and from hell. Can't you rejoice in that? Only if you have a heart purified by faith in a reverent awe. Jesus is God, Lord and Savior. We're going to continue on in Mark 5 next week with a second story as we uh, continue the exposition of the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ.